is a moral call right here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. I'm Benjamin Day. I'm Stephanie Nakajima. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. Welcome to the pod today. We have an incredible special guest, Stephanie Kang. Uh, welcome, Stephanie. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Anytime. You could join as a permanent guest if you like. Um, <laughs> Stephanie is the health policy director for Rep. Pramila Jayapal's office. Uh, Rep. Jayapal is the lead sponsor of the Medicare for All bill in the House. So, Stephanie, could you tell us like a little bit about why you are so passionate about Medicare for All in particular? And you recently just completed a doctoral on Medicare for All, making you like the leading expert in Congress on this. <laughs> yeah. Well, first, again, thank you so much, Ben and Stephanie, for having me. This is a topic near and dear to my heart. I've been working for the Congresswoman for the past two years, day in and day out on Medicare for All. I'm really excited about all of the achievements we made together um, in this last Congress. But specifically, I came into this work very serendipitously. My work had been much uh, more around global health and health equity from an international perspective. But the more I was working in different countries, the more I realized the U.S. you know, was determining the health care agenda of all of these other countries around the world and mm. had not secured healthcare as a right for its own people. And, you know, I think that mixed with 2016 and a lot of the different mm-hmm. tumultuous politics that were happening, I felt called to come back um, to the U.S. and work here. And so I was very fortunate to have landed a fellowship that allowed me to work in the Congresswoman Jayapal's office on Medicare mm-hmm. for All. And for me, I mean, really just any interaction I have had with the healthcare system, either personally or for my family, mm-hmm. it just completely solidifies that, okay, we cannot approach this incrementally. Band-aid approaches don't mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. if we really want to get to the core of what are these issues. And so just really quickly, like for example, my, my father, um, just in this past year, he found out he had a tumor in his spine. Right. And had to get a surgery scheduled. Uh, the day before his surgery, the insurance company denied the claim. They said it was medically unnecessary. Right. right. Um, there mm-hmm. were only three doctors in his network. Two of the doctors dropped out of his network. Right. To get this mm-hmm. tumor out. They said if we wanted to pay, would it be a $40,000 down payment? It's just all of these crazy things that just don't get addressed unless we have mm-hmm. a public single-payer um, healthcare system. And just improving the Affordable Care Act would not have changed your father's situation it wouldn't have changed at all, that. Exactly. like for so many of us. Mm-hmm. And in case folks aren't aware of this, it is not common for legislators to have like a Medicare for All specialist on staff in their office. So this is really awesome. I mean, what did you what did you write your dissertation on? Yeah, um, so my dissertation is called The Rise and Future of Medicare for All, Advancing the Single-Payer Movement in the 21st Century. Sorry, yes. I always <laughs> so many words. <laughs> um, but really, I, I, so I have my mug here. It's, uh, it says, Give Him Help by uh, President Truman. Um, uh-huh. So really just capturing the history of single-payer or the fight for a national health insurance system that's persisted mm-hmm. in our country for so long. But then pinpointing exactly why and how the incredible amount of momentum and precedence, both politically and legislatively, that Medicare for All has gotten in just the last few years. Why did that happen? And really just narrowing down and centering on both the inside efforts by political champions, such as Senator Sanders and Congressman Jayapal, but also the outside groups and that mobilization that has happened that is very unique to this moment. And why that, you know, my conclusion then was single payer is not a matter of if, but when. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, we want to hear more from Stephanie, but 
Before we go forward, I'm just going to give like a really quick overview or summary of the Medicare for All bill. I think for most people, if you're listening to Medicare for All, the podcast, you probably already know. So this is going to be really just quick bullet points. So of course, you know, Medicare for All, it is the ultimate answer to our fragmented, unequal and unjust healthcare system, right? Right now, some people have good insurance. That's not actually really that good. Bad insurance. And some people have no insurance. And the Medicare for All Act brings everyone up to the same gold standard of comprehensive public health insurance that you receive when you're born and you can never lose, right? So that every resident of the United States has guaranteed access to full health care with all benefits. And of course, right now, Medicare has really big holes, <laughs> co-pays, deductibles, like prescription drugs are still way too expensive. Um, and Medicare for all would just eliminate out-of-pocket costs for any services and then also add dental, vision, women's reproductive health services, so abortion and full maternity care, and long-term services supports, which is a huge also hole right now in our just general health care system. Uh, and much more. And then finally, uh, what Medicare for All would do is finally make our healthcare costs sustainable by cutting administrative waste, cutting you know, out all the things that health insurance companies currently spend money on, including lobbying Congress, profits, marketing, all that stuff. Denying grandfathers. Would, <laughs> denying, exactly. <laughs> reducing Fathers. the cost of prescription, yeah, making everyone's life a lot easier. Reducing the cost of prescription drugs by allowing for negotiation of drug price. So right now, Medicare is prohibited from negotiating drug prices, which is, I think, one of the most shameful open secrets uh, of Congress. And making payment of doctors and hospitals standardized and fair, which would be like a total game changer for underserved clinics, rural, urban settings. So Stephanie, uh, almost 90% of Dems in the country support Medicare for all, <laughs> but only about half of Dems in the House support. So we have like a representational gap here. What are the most common questions or pushback you get from other reps about the bill? And if you also want to talk also about any pushback or questions you get from the general public at large. Certainly. So when we talk with representatives who are either curious about particular provisions or perhaps are stalling to not get onto the bill by asking certain policy questions, they usually tend to center around what does the pay for plan look like? So how do you finance Medicare for all? What does it cost, et cetera? The other piece is around choice. A lot of people have are, tried to argue that, well, you have other countries that have maintained a private insurance system. Why can't we? And so when we push back on that, we make two things very clear. And I, you know, we've, we have study after study after study, and I'm sure everyone on this call knows this, but the cost of the Medicare for all system, a single payer system would either be equal to or less than our current system, but provide significantly more benefits and health security at no cost sharing, right? Like you get so much more for less. And usually when that happens, then we also start talking a little bit more about how do you transition into that piece? People like their employer plans. I'll say, especially during COVID, the, the argument of, well, people like their employer plans has not been made in recent times. And you can guess <laughs> why. You've had millions of people who have lost their health insurance simply because they lost their jobs. That doesn't happen in other developed countries. This is not a concept in industrialized nations because 
health security is supposed to mean, regardless of your employment status, regardless if you turn 27, regardless of whatever life change happens, you should have comprehensive health benefits, right? It's just sort of an understood. And so, you know, when we start thinking about choice, I, we always, of course, emphasize the choice that matters to people, choice of your doctors, choice of your the provider that you need to go to. And this is something Medicare for All really encapsulates is this freedom of choice to go to the doctor that you want and that you need at the time that you need it. Excellent. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just, just going to say, the public. speaking of the public, there's quite good questions coming in on YouTube and Facebook, and we will get to as many of them as we can at, at the kind of appropriate moment. But go ahead and talk about the questions you most get from the public. Sure. Um, Not in our okay. comment section. <laughs> yeah, this is something I, I've thought about um, a lot, especially, um, so I'm from Tennessee, and the conversation for Medicare for All in Tennessee is just, it starts at a very different place than I think the national conversation has, or perhaps in more urban areas. Here, we're at you know, the highest per capita rate of rural hospitals closing. You know, we still have 675,000 people who are uninsured, haven't expanded Medicaid. And so the conversation here, I feel like in terms of Medicare for all and the questions are really just trying to understand, you know, with the very little public safety net programs that exist, what would happen to them? Because there is a major concern because there's so little. But then I would say in the public across to you know similar questions around cost and choice. But I would say I tend to see a, a turning point in terms of when we talk about cost and choice with the public much quicker than I have with uh, perhaps some offices. Yeah, and you mentioned that the this whole narrative that totally dominated the Democratic primaries in the beginning about people losing their private health insurance, which they fought so hard to get, which apparently, you know, for Joe Biden means you you should continue to fight for the health care that you that you barely have left. But after COVID hit and millions of people lost their jobs, it just seems ridiculous to be defending employment linked to your health insurance. But I think I think there is a legitimate concern by many people, partly because of these fears that are fanned, but also just uncertainty for folks who do have health insurance through their through a private employer or a public employer for that matter. What does it look like, especially like how do you transition to the Medicare for All plan? I mean, what does it look like from the perspective of a person, not like talking about the system as a whole? Sure. And so in terms of the transition into the plan, it's not like you're going to be just all of a sudden left without any health insurance while you're waiting for the system to get set up because there, right. you know, there <laughs> is going to have to be some time for the Medicare for All system to get up and running. And so just to help visualize this, this is sort of similarly modeled after how Canada does it, but Canada does it by its provinces. We would have it by regional directors. So you'd have to set up these regional directors who would be overseeing you know, our regionist states and their hospitals. And then at that same time, you would be starting to transition people in. So people who are under the age of 18 um, and over the age of 55, by the end of the first year, would be transitioned into a plan. And I can promise you, I, I'm happy to go toe-to-toe with any union, any employer. I have not seen a plan that is as comprehensive or gener- as generous as Medicare for All. Um, So you will not be transitioned into a plan that will give you less. You'll only be transitioned to a plan that is either about equivalent or better. And so then after that second year, the rest of the people who are in the other age groups would get transitioned in. Again, this is not some like abrupt, you're just going to be left to your devices and have to figure it out. You're going to be transitioned by age into the Medicare for All plan. People who are born would be automatically enrolled into it as well uh, within those years of transition. And while at the same time, 
time again, um, we're having all of the more administrative parts set up, right? And, you know, of course, as Stephanie highlighted, the beauty of a single payer system is that it's much more administratively simple. So we, you know, would hope that that rollout could be relatively quick while we're getting everyone ready to be part of this universal system. Right. And some people have kind of, well, especially among our very strong activist base, people are like, why do we even need a transition at all? And I think the thing that some folks need to understand is especially when you're about to pass a Medicare for All bill, there is a chance that private insurance companies are going to collapse or that will go under. They'll kind of anticipate their end. They, their investors might start pulling out, things like that. So you do need to have kind of a system to catch them before the single payer system is fully implemented. So I think it's being thorough to have these, like, you know, we're going to have a public option available to catch people who lose their private insurance, things like this in place. Absolutely. I think people have to recognize, too, that the history of our health insurance system has resulted in a very fragmented majority private, right? Over 50% of people are in a private plan. So that is 156 million people who would have to be transitioned over. So just like you said, Benjamin, it's not like we should not be cavalier about that. We should be very intentional to ensure that no one is falling through the cracks during that time. Yeah. So to switch to a different topic. So when uh, Rep Jayapal took on this bill, uh, she and the team made major updates for the first time to this bill in more than a decade, right? We went from John Conyers bill to this like really more sort of fleshed out comprehensive bill. What have been like two to three of the biggest changes you would say both last session and this session? Well, first Rep Conyers, you know, HR 676, I know it's very near and dear to the single parent movement, um, but was, you know, this like 20 page resolution that gave a really great outline of Medicare for all plan. Congresswoman Jaya Got us started. Exactly, right? It gave a nice little layout. But what Congresswoman Jayapal wanted was a battle-ready, comprehensive plan that could be taken, you know, for legislative consideration, could actually go through committees, right? And so transform that into a 125-page blueprint that gives a detailed, more comprehensive layout of what all of the different provisions would look like for a Medicare for All plan. And so one of the, some of the key differences that were made or expansions, specifically around long-term care, as you mentioned, this is just a really forsaken part of our healthcare system that's just really been um, left to the wayside. Congressman Jayapal's bill was the first bill to ever provide universal long-term care supports and services for every uh, person with disability and for our seniors. Um, and this is a very comprehensive set of coverage. We also included some provisions specifically around the drug pricing. And so, you know, as you said to Medicare currently is not able to negotiate. I think there was a study done recently where Medicare is shown to pay two times more than Medicaid and three times more than the VA for the exact same drugs, right? That's outrageous. What we included in the Medicare for All bill was to allow Medicare not only just to negotiate, but to have a really powerful stick where basically that if a manufacturer or drug company says like, no, I'm not going to take your negotiated price, you'd open up the patent to generics. And so that's how you would make sure that we're going to have lower drug prices for everyone. And there's a couple other like different changes around transition, et cetera. But those are the top two. And uh, there was a question in the comments section about is there specifically any major differences from, uh, I don't even know if the ink is fully dry on the legislation that's about to be introduced, but is there any significant differences from last session or are people largely going to see this a similar bill to last session? I would say you'll see a largely similar bill. I think there's a couple things I like to note around some of the improvements that we made. So structurally the same, a couple things that we did was just really try to specify some of the benefits that some people were concerned weren't included. And then also, you know, ensuring that the Secretary of Health 
health would not be able to remove benefits. So, you know, obviously we just experienced a quite traumatic administration. Um, should we ever find ourselves in a hospital administration again, we wanted to ensure that the secretary is not able to take away any of those, especially, you know, thinking through reproductive health, which I'll also note the Medicare for All bill does include explicit repeal of the Hyde Amendment. And then also thinking through to around health equity, you know, I, I strongly believe that a single payer or universal single payer healthcare system is a critical first step towards achieving health justice, but it by itself cannot do it. And so, you know, making it very clear that we recognize that a single payer health insurance system is not by itself able to do that, um, but it has to center equity in all it does. And so establishing an office of health equity within the Medicare for All system that would monitor, keep track of all, you know, patient data and making sure that, you know, we are setting equity benchmarks that have to be hit and actually putting teeth behind that to ensure that they're being enacted. And then lastly, I'll also note for anyone who is either currently in the military or enlisted, there is the separation of TRICARE's public direct care system. So similarly uh, to the VA and IHS, Medicare for All bill previously left the VA and IHS system out. But just to clarify, people who are in the VA and IHS are able to access both the VA or IHS and Medicare for All. And so now we're doing that similarly for TRICARE's public care system. Cool. So I had another question for you about the Progressive Caucus. So the Progressive Caucus in the House is, it's got to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest caucuses in the House, but notoriously has had a hard time wielding its own power (laughs) or its own leverage to kind of move the Democratic Caucus. I think in the way that for a number of years, the Blue Dog uh, Democrat Caucus was actually really effective at, you know, leveraging that handful of votes to kind of move legislation to the right in certain directions. And I mean, we do actually have Blue Dog members who are supportive of Medicare for All, so they're not like right on every issue. Um, so I, I know that uh, Rep. Jayapal is also the chair of the Progressive Caucus, so it's great we have that kind of overlap. What changes is Rep. Jayapal sort of leading around the Progressive Caucus, and do you think it's going to have like an impact around the Medicare for All fight in Congress? Absolutely. I think this is really important to talk about um, because when we think through the infrastructure we need to build, both on the outside and the grassroots movement, but also on the inside to ensure that we actually have levers that we can pull to advance Medicare for All, this is really critical for the CPC to be able to actualize that and operationalize that. And so this was a huge priority for Congresswoman Jayapal. You know, before her, the CPC only had one staff when he's incredible executive director, Mike Darner, but it was one staff for, you know, 90 plus members, almost a hundred members. And wasn't, there wasn't really this like formal rules or infrastructure inside. And so what she did was a few things. And we, Folly back and forth between the first or the second largest ideological caucus, I think between the new Dems. Hmm. Um, but basically, there's a few things that we did to make sure that we're able to move as a coordinated unit. And so one, if a legislative priority is passed and approved through the CPC, then members of the CPC have to vote in line with a caucus at minimum two thirds of the time. And so this is to make sure again, that like, if there are moments we need members to be all together and vote in the same way that's in there. Also, members generally have to attend at least half of the meeting so that they're also in line and informed about the different priorities that are happening. And then also another key piece too is we consolidate now to one chair. Previously, there are two co-chairs. Most caucuses only have one chair. Um, and this is just to allow the CPC to become more nimble and more responsive to different changes or different situations that are happening. And so ultimately, if the CPC exercises its leverage correctly, we should be able to push the Democratic caucus 
towards being more responsive. However, I'll just note really quick, while our margins for the Democrats have gotten much smaller, I think it's only four votes to be able to uh, sway a vote. That means every caucus has that margin, right? And so it's not like, oh, just because the CPC mobilizes, it's done because more conservative Democrats can do the exact same thing. Good point. And people might think that this is a no-brainer, but we have had members of the of the Progressive Caucus not on the Medicare for All bill. And we're like, mm-hmm. what is going on here? So I think these changes are really helpful. And before we move off the topic, there was another good question in the chat section about the just transition plan for potentially displaced workers. Could you just very briefly speak to that and if there's any changes around that in the bill? For sure. Uh, yeah, I saw that question, I think, from Ira. Yes. So the bill does already include a just transition piece where at least 1% of the budget will go towards providing wage assistance, pension, education, training assistance, plus more uh, for up to five years for any worker affected by the transition. And what we did this time was we improved that by including even more benefits that are available and also included specifying that preferential hiring would also occur for those affected by the transition. So when can we expect um, this bill? Ah, very soon. Um, This week is going to be a little (laughs) crazy for me. Um, We are introducing next Wednesday, so March 17th. We're very excited to do this with Congresswoman Debbie Dingell again. We're expecting a very strong showing of co-sponsors. It's been going great. We still need, you know, your help, and we hope that all of you will participate in making sure your Congress members get back on. But so far, it's been going well. Great. So since it's going to be imminently introduced, and probably a lot of the co-sponsors who were on last year will already have been pushed on this issue and will have signed on as original co-sponsors. I know we make a big emphasis to get a lot of folks on before the bill is even introduced, but we still have at least half the Democratic caucus left to push. And so there's going to be a lot of lobbying going around with all of our activists around the country in the next month in particular. Can you speak a little bit to like, you know, as a staffer in a legislative office, what is really the most effective way to impact your legislator? You know, obviously a lot of people are constantly asked to sign like online petitions. People constantly asked here, call your legislator today, but then people can also do bigger things like get together a delegation of constituents from your district to have like an office meeting with a staffer, or you could get like a bunch of significant unions or grassroots organizations together and have a coalition meeting. Like on that whole scale of things, what really is the most impactful in, in terms of moving a legislator? Um, this is a great question. And it's it's really incredible. I see it all the time, the impact that happens on this side of the screen where, you know, we get requests or our constituents flag things and make it very, very clear it's a priority. It's it's nearly impossible to ignore. And so I just wanted to really emphasize that while it sometimes can feel strange or like you're not getting a response because you've you know picked up the phone, you've called the office, you've left a voicemail or you've sent an email and you're not getting a response back. I promise you someone has seen it. Someone is reading it and they're collecting it and they're literally counting or reporting back to either the chief or the entire team. Hey, we've gotten X number of emails from this many people and they're all constituents from our district. I'll say that if you are from the district, it is really, really important. That's really critical to flag. And you know, I, I would say also like tactically, calling the phone right now is a little bit hard because a lot of us are working from home. That being said, if you call, please leave a voicemail. Right. So if someone picks up, leave a voicemail. They are still checking that. If you can email your staff, the staffers, you can usually find a staffer's name or who the staffer is. So you want to look either for the legislative director or for the health legislative assistant for the office. You can find it online. Typically house emails are first name dot last name at mail dot house dot dev. And then share your story. Stories are really important. I wouldn't write a very long email. I literally get like 
thousands of emails every day. So something just very succinct and saying exactly what you want from your congressperson and why it matters and that you're watching, you're hoping, you're you're going to, you know, watch if your congress member is on the bill um, is really important. But also numbers, right? So as Ben mentioned, you know, getting a group together and being able to, you know, represent a, a large, diverse constituency of people and requesting a meeting. Right now, it's it's you know much easier to get a meeting because you don't have to fly to DC or go to the district office. You know, we're having a lot of virtual meetings right now, and so requesting that meeting and getting it, and then being in person and asking those questions are really important. That being said, I'll say you know because we have gotten a lot of co-sponsors on already, the ones who are still perhaps struggling will ask very policy oriented questions so please come prepared really do your work i know healthcare now has incredible resources on their website make sure you're checking that out read it through be ready with those talking points so that if they're asking any questions specifically on the policy you're able to do that thank you so much stephanie um can you stay on for just a couple more minutes to answer some questions in the chat awesome okay um this question can medicare for all pass as a reconciliation bill if not why not yeah, um, so reconciliation is super tricky and has these things called bird rules. It's done by this man named Bird. <laughs> He's a senator. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I will not even try to pretend to be a bird rule specialist or like understand all of the nuances of reconciliation. My understanding is that the entirety of the Medicare for All bill would not be possible through reconciliation, just given its scale and all of the different provisions that are included in it. I mean, we all saw what happened to fight for 15, uh, unfortunately, and this was specifically because of one of the parliamentarians ruling on it and it not being birdable is how we call it. So I can't, I can't speak to all the nuances of it, but my understanding is that it would not be possible through reconciliation. That being said, there are arguments for other pieces of it, whether it's like lowering the Medicare age, I think is arguably able to pass through something like reconciliation. And we've got a couple of questions on the Healthcare Emergency Guarantee Act and if Rep. Jayapal plans to reintroduce that as well. For sure. I'll say that we're following Senator Sanders' lead on the Healthcare Emergency Guarantee Act. I know that they have been quite busy with, you know, obviously Senator Sanders now being our budget chairman and, the, you know, the most recent uh, $1.9 trillion package has now passed, but there is a new package coming through for climate and infrastructure. So that being said, I know it's still absolutely a priority for both of our offices. I don't have a timeline at this moment, but the plan is to hopefully reintroduce at some point. Yeah, sure. And then... There's another question here about the reimbursement system. Sure. So I also saw a question from Claire too, asking if the actual language includes global budgets for hospitals. And so, yes. Mm. So this is answering both you, Ricky and Claire. There, There is two types of reimbursement systems for institutional providers, so for like hospitals and larger clinics. It would be through a global budget system. And what that means is that hospitals would basically get paid prospectively based on a formula of what is the hospital need for maximum capacity, what are the historical records for how much they've needed in terms of revenue in the past to operate and a few other factors. And then they'll get that money. And then quarterly, they'll be able to get that sum of money each time and they'll have a review and be able to make adjustments. I'll also state, say that the bill, uh, the new bill will include adjustments in the global budgets, specifically being able to address times of pandemic and crisis. Um, and so we really <laughs> want to ensure not only do the hospitals yeah. have all the funding that they need, they're not scrambling mm-hmm. like they were here. We saw a nonprofit hospitals closing across the country during times of pandemic with a global budget system that will not happen. And we can also ensure that when funding is going out, so we saw billions of dollars from CARES, it's not going to just go to the highest profit hospitals. We're going to ensure an Mm -hmm. equitable distribution, especially to our safety net in rural hospitals. 
And so that's really one of yeah. the also benefits of the global budgets. Yeah, this is such a wonky topic, global budgets yeah. and <laughs> payments and stuff, but it is actually, it has such a huge effect on equity, so like you were just explaining. And I think that that's just a really important thing to point out that um, a lot of clinics that actually, that do serve underserved community, I mean, they are underserved because they're not financed to the same extent. And this, exactly. you know, the fact that we would do a global budget would actually be transformative for for the clinics that serve underserved communities. So quick question here about the Senate bill. Is the Senate bill being dropped together? So we have you know, hoped for a, a joint introduction. Um, Senator Sanders is absolutely very supportive of our rollout in the next couple of weeks. I'll let their office respond, or if you like to reach out to them asking, inquiring about their rollout date. But we have worked very closely together on in terms of bill text. And I know that they are hoping to also introduce in the near future. And there's another question. And now I can't find, I can't find the person who asked it to pull it up on the screen here. But I think I saw a couple questions about hearings. So is there a strategy yet uh, around hearings? Or have y'all just sort of been getting the bill ready? We've been hopefully doing both. Because um, this is really <laughs> critical. I mean, first I'll highlight that I think, you know, this Congress is a really unique opportunity to really build up the grassroots and the ground game on Medicare for All and expand our coalition. But let's not forget about the inside. Let's not. We established an incredible precedent for legislative conversation on Medicare for All. And I really can't iterate how important this is. You know, last Congress, we had four congressional hearings on Medicare for All. Why is that important? Well, the last time any senator or congressperson had a discussion on single payer, it's been several decades since that happened. And specifically on Medicare for All legislation, it's never happened. Being able to participate and enforce Congress members to participate in that conversation, to have a real policy substantive debate about it is really important. And so we need to continue that momentum. We have a commitment from the Small Business Committee, from Chairwoman Nidia Velasquez on it, to hold a hearing on Medicare for All. Um, and, you know, we have Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, who is our fellow champion on Medicare for All. She's on Energy and Commerce. And so we really hope for a full committee hearing in Energy and Commerce as well. But would love to hear people's ideas and hopefully we can continue having some more hearings on this. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you feel like hearings really put pressure on legislators? Do you feel like legislators feel the heat from having to sit in a hearing? Absolutely. Because a hearing, it's incredible because, you know, usually you have five minutes to speak, right? A member has five minutes, but you have, there's so much preparation that goes into those five minutes from the staff and the member, because that requires the member to actually read up on the bill, to understand the policy, to be able to debate the policy, to be able to ask the witnesses questions on the policy, right? So you're forcing this member to actually consider for themselves, what would it look like if we had a single pair system? If I oppose it, why? If I support it, why? So these hearings are really critical for that. Also, you just simply can't get a bill like Medicare for All to the floor without committee hearings. It's just <laughs> so they're really critical. We may no. have had a big discussion about that over the last couple of months. I <laughs> uh, can't right. remember, uh, but don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and those, yeah, those four hearings you talked about, we had to fight really hard to get those. Each one of those, the chairs of those committees, well, some of them were very enthusiastic about it. Some really did not want to hold them. And then we had to organize around actually getting Medicare advocates and getting patients who could speak to their experiences and nurses who could speak to their experiences on these hearings. So they are incredibly important from an organizing perspective and sort of testing our strength with moving this ahead in the house. So I'm looking forward to that. But of course, phase one is going to be this big co-sponsor push and really pushing our co-sponsor numbers up. So I think we're going to wrap it up here. Thank you so much for taking your time. I know you're getting busier and busier as we get closer and closer to the introduction of this bill, but we will talk to you more as we get closer to the bill drop. And obviously we'll be doing probably a lot of podcasts focused on this bill in the next, in the next month or so. 
So thank you so much, Stephanie. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I, I just want to say too, I, I've cited like a lot of the documents and work on healthcare now that y'all have produced in my dissertation. So really, it's incredible hey. the, <laughs> the tracking and the and the work that y'all have done. It's very unique to what y'all do. And so I'm just really grateful to have been here. Was our history page useful yeah. for at least one person? Super <laughs> useful, absolutely. If you want a history of single pair legislation, it's on our it's website. It's, I, I think though, those that we don't reflect enough about mm. the attempts we've made in the past and why they failed, right? Mm. So let's learn from those incidents and make our movement stronger. I agree, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, we'll talk to you all later. Yeah, take care. Thank you. Bye. Yeah.